0: Sure Yeah so Chad Hufford, um, the founder of Veritas Wealth Management. Uh, we're a financial fl- financial planning firm based out of Anchorage, Alaska work with folks all over the United States just helping them invest more intentionally, uh, live more intentionally and ultimately have a more abundant life. We partner with firms like Dave Ramsey and others. Uh just, just to make sure that we can help people apply those principles to their own specific financial goals.
1: Wow, and your man and your fund manages five hundred million dollars? Yeah, our, our firm, yeah. So we don't we don't
0: actually have our proprietary funds, David. That's a good question. Um we help people with the the investments the opportunities that are already available to them in a lot of in a lot of situations. Like for example, if you work with a company and they have a four one K they're only gonna allow you to work with certain funds inside that. So we take the options available to people, help them find the most optimal funds that they can access, but most importantly, help them become better investors, which is a completely different thing. So a lot of financial planners are out there trying to help people find more optimal investments, but helping people become better investors is an actual change to the individual themselves but what sets us apart is helping people look at and behave differently with money and investments and actually become a better investor in the process
1: the 500 million is the amount of money of in total of the people that you're kind of advising yep we yeah we
0: manage it but we're managing it in typically individual accounts oh so we don't have this big fund with half a billion dollars in there we have individual families with individual accounts that aggregate to a- about 500 million but some of that is in iras some of that is in 401ks some of that's just in individual brokerage accounts what we try to do is really look at what is somebody trying to build long term like what do they really need david and then use the right tools to get them there rather than saying hey here's the tool let's see if if we can figure out a, a use for that in your life which is makes it a lot more fun for us because we're not we're not tied to any one fund or any one company or any one investment strategy. We find what's going to work best for you and your journey and then go out and find those tools. So it's, again, it's, it, you know, we're not inventing new treadmills. We're just getting people to run on them.
1: I like that. So somebody comes to you and they say, uh, you know, Chad, I have $10 million, you know, And then you ask them, like, what do they want? Like, maybe if it's a young guy, he wants to be more aggressive. So it's kind of you start making a profile out of that person and then kind of having a strategy tailored to them of where to invest, um, potential mistakes. All this is this kind of how and then they don't give you the money. They put the money where you tell them to Is that how it works. So. it it is yeah so we do set up accounts we do like
0: open up accounts or some is they do have direct accounts with us but sometimes with again like a 401k they until they leave the employer that money has to stay there so they're like hey here's who i work for i've been put into this 401k for for 20 30 years i'm not going to retire for two or three more years what do i need to do with that until i can actually move this into an ira with you guys um, actually, just had that conversation uh, with with a guy that had a Vanguard 401k this is 30 minutes ago, and we're just like, okay, so here's here's the limitations that you have inside that account. Here's the tools that you can access. Let's pick the best tools based on what you're trying to build. And back to your what you said earlier about like, how does this process even start? We don't ask them about what they want from their investments until we know what they want from their life. So. It's, we're looking at tools to build a better life first. Too many people, and this sounds really weird because investments are what we do, but we're starting from life goals first. And a lot of times we're asking people, what is the job of this money? Is it for an inheritance? Is it, you know, maybe it's a business owner who wants to, to expand and buy out another business in five or 10 years, or uh, buy a building. You know, they're renting and they want to they buy a huge warehouse, but it's eight or 10 years down the road. Um, they wanna buy out their partner in 15 years, whatever. But a lot of times it's retirement. It's people don't wanna to have to work every single day for the rest of their life. So it's building financial independence from a paycheck. So we ask them, you know, what would your life look like if you never had to go to work ever again? Like what, what would wake you up in the morning? What would challenge you? What would invigorate you? What would make life meaningful if you no longer needed your job? And get them to talk about more life goals and what is what meaningful purpose would look like to them. And then we figure out the financial goals around it. And then we figure out the financial tools that we need to accomplish the financial goals to ultimately accomplish the the life goals. Because this is, again, this is about living in freedom and abundance. Wealth is just a, a tool to help people attain that. But if people don't know what's deeply meaningful to them and what gives them a sense of freedom, more money doesn't help. It's like giving somebody who doesn't know where they're going a faster car. You're just gonna get lost quicker. Like it doesn't really help. And you act, we we run into wealthy people, David, that don't really have a strategic use for their money. And they're trying to solve the problem with more money. And what they really need is more direction.
1: Yeah, because if you ask somebody the initial question I asked you, like, uh, of how, like, what do they want? Obviously, everybody's gonna say more money. But that's kind mm-hmm. of why you ask this other question to get a better perspective and uh, and then tailor to the goals, which is really the you know the uh, the fundamental underlying situation that kind of needs the solving versus you know just more money.
0: Exactly. It's what is the what is the job of this money in your life? What does the money need to do for you? And some people don't know, and some people need help unpacking that. And again, like for some people, it might be an inheritance. It might be like, hey, this money over here is for my own financial security. This money over here, I don't think I'll ever need, but I've worked hard for it and I don't want the government to take it all. You know, I want that to go to my grandkids. Um, So they might have two different financial objectives within one financial plan. And that's totally normal. But, you know, back to what you said, like if you don't have, a strategic use for your money, if you don't have a job getting more of it doesn't solve any problems. In fact, it can actually be terrifying for some people because they told themselves, hey, when I hit a net worth of 5 million or 10 million, like then I'll feel safe, then I'll feel secure. And it doesn't happen. And they hit those numbers and because they don't have a use for that money, what they're worried about is losing it. They're not worried about how to use it, they're worried about losing it and and they still live in a scarcity mindset. But what we found is if you can connect somebody's investments to their financial goals and ultimately to their life goals, they start experiencing more abundance, regardless of how much money they have.
1: Also, I think people that have like 10 million Sometimes it feels worse when you have even a lot of money because it's going down gradually. And that feeling of it going down gradually kind of creates anxiety no matter how much you have. Versus like, I guess what you, you do is kind of create some type of way that it starts, maybe like some investment that is like a gradual increase. And then that can sustain their goal of, you know, 10 million being enough. It's like 10 million, but well invested, You're yielding back some money, not just 10 million, sitting in the bank going slowly down every year, right? So
0: what you brought up is a
1: crucial point. My industry
0: talks about an accumulation phase and then a decumulation phase. Like you build up all this money and then you gradually spend it. The problem with that is twofold. Number one, at some point, there's nothing left. So you have to die soon enough before you run out of money. I don't think somebody dying should be a part of anybody's financial plan. Like I need to die by a certain date in order for my plan to work. It's it's just it's just a it's a miserable depressing way to start planning, right? But here's the other thing. Is for people who were wired naturally as savers, it's really hard to think of themselves as, "Well, I used to be a saver, now I'm a spender." So here's how we've here's how we flip this. We we teach people to think about building wealth as planting an orchard. And the idea is while you are working, whether you have a business, whether you're employed somebody else, maybe you're doing both, but during your career, you build up that orchard large enough. So by the time you are ready for a work optional lifestyle slash retirement, by the time you're financially independent, you don't need to consume the trees. You just live off the fruit. So you're picking the income being produced by your investments whether that's real estate whether that's mutual funds but you're never actually selling off your funds you just take the income that they produce and like an orchard the the trees keep growing you're just picking the fruit every month so that does a lot of things for the individual number one their identity is not saver versus spender it's hey i'm a farmer of this orchard i'm in the harvest season now i'm no longer in the planting season I'm in the harvest season." But their orchard keeps growing, the trees keep getting bigger, so they also don't have to worry about running out of money. Because if they're never selling the trees, they can't outlive it. And then the last piece, and this is also really critical, is when somebody opens up their 401k statement, their IRA statement, their brokerage statement, one of the first things they look for is the statement value. If I were to sell everything I have right now, how much money could I get for it? Well. If you have a mentality of I'm a farmer with an orchard, you're not worried about how much your trees are worth at any given moment. What you're concerned about is how much income can this orchard produce over my lifetime? It's an income focus rather than a principal focus. So we can ignore those temporary price fluctuations because they're always gonna be there. I mean, we've seen it pretty wild over the past year and a half, but investing in companies is always very, very volatile. But if we're looking at long-term income versus how much is everything worth in the moment, we can largely ignore temporary volatility and focus on the long-term advance. Does that make sense? I just threw a lot out
1: No, it makes perfect sense. So I wanna say two things. One is, uh, it's very different, like you said, having $10 million in the bank thinking, oh my God, I'm a multimillionaire, I have 10 million, I just spent 50,000, what's that? And to say, well, I have 10 million that's giving me this amount of income now you have a budget that you are aware of. So you're keeping control of your finances because you know, money is like water, right? And, uh, so basically what you're doing is somehow, you know, through your strategies, create it, putting this money to work where it's creating a certain percentage, you know, overall of profit, which part gets reinvested to grow the orchard and part gets taken out as the budget for kind of the, the daily, you know, or whatever life expenses that, right? Exactly. And we look about the
0: sustainability because there's there's two issues in long-term financial security. There's duration and direction. When I Here's what I mean by that. Duration of your income, how long does it last? And direction of your income. Will it gradually increase? Because let's face it, David, prices don't go down. We, we are living in a rising cost world. We need to have a rising income in retirement. So we look at duration and direction of income and then we tell people, okay, this is a sustainable amount of income. So let's just use your example. You know, somebody with a $10 million net worth, we, we look at our formulas, we look at their specific strategy, their needs, and we say, okay, one and a half million dollars, uh, or not one half million, that's, that'd, be, that'd be too much. But you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, uh, half a million dollars a year or something is a sustainable income based off of that. So, yes, your orchard is worth $10 million, but your income, what you're living off of, is going to be this smaller piece. So, to what you just said, it, it keeps them from thinking, like, we have $10 million to spend. It's like, no, you, you know, you've got maybe $40,000 a month you can spend, which is still a lot, but you don't feel like you can blow through this giant piece because what we don't want is somebody stealing from the 80-year-old version of themselves. So, it keeps them it, it, it kind of keeps them somewhat constrained so they don't overdo it. And it also gives them a very clear message of here's what you can enjoy today without stealing from the future. So when they go on the vacations, when they buy the Porsche, when they do the things they've always wanted, they don't they don't have that guilt like, Ugh, am I stealing from 80 year old version of me or am I gonna live too long and I'm run out of this? No, this is sustainable. So this amount of income that you're getting every month, every year, enjoy it. Because just like an orchard, the trees reproduce that every single year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I wish I would have met you before I blew all my inheritance money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you're asking great questions. I mean, the way you're thinking about this is absolutely correct. It's very different though, from how a lot of people think about it, where it's almost like they have a fixed amount of money and they just gradually burn through it. But then what happens if you live longer than you're expecting to? What, what happens if prices continue to rise, which they almost certainly will. And people run into a lot of issues 5, 10, 15 years down the road when now they're too old to go back to work that they could have addressed in their 40s, 50s, and 60s before they stopped working. So trying to get people to solve problems before they're facing them. That's a huge part of
1: what we do. And that's basically, that's even more important than all the investment, you know, just simple mindset and, you know, mistake avoidance can be more profitable than, the most advanced quantum, you know, George Soros Black box algorithm, you know, it's just the basic of human, you know, mistakes that temptations, you know, that we're, I mean, you can, anybody can think they're smart, but when you got money, like suddenly, you know, you're not that smart and, and you don't, we're very easy to make mistakes when with money as human beings. Right. Money is a very emotional trigger. Right. And it it is
0: hard to make money decisions without emotions getting involved. When emotions get involved, we're more likely to make mistakes. So you said it. I mean, we I'm just gonna kind of make it punchy, but we are mistake managers. That's a huge part of what we do is keeping people from blowing up their own financial house, helping people avoid those costly mistakes that are so prevalent. And it's not a knowledge issue. It's a behavioral issue, and it's not. It's not just in finance. So there's a McDonald's right next door to our office. There's a Subway on the other side. So I'm watching people all day long make bad health decisions, based mostly off emotions, because it's what they want in the moment. Everybody knows a McFlurry is not healthy, but they're going to go in there and they're going to order it anyway, and they're going to, they're going to put a cost on their future self just to have a little momentary pleasure. With investing or finances with money, sometimes it's momentary relief. People are like, oh, this market is so crazy. I just wanna be in a safe investment. And they sell off companies at a discount to move their money into cash that gradually gets eaten by inflation. But what it does, it gives them momentary relief. It's an emotional decision, but it's a huge mistake. So yes, to your point, we absolutely do that. Managing mistakes is is maybe, the single most important thing that we do, because it doesn't matter how good your investments are, doesn't matter how good your plan is, if you don't follow it, if you blow it up, none of none of the, that rest
1: matters. That's the whole thing goes two. up in smokes. Yeah, yep. everything you is step one. Once you get that, then you can worry about step two, which is the other, you know, stuff. But uh, a lot of in this podcast, we talk a lot about mindset and psychology, and, you know, I always talk about how humans we overestimate ourselves way too much. We think we are like much smarter than we are. We have like so many blind spots. So you can, you've seen that more than anybody. And I just want you to tell the people, like, because everybody thinks, not me, not me. How much percentage of the people that, with your experience, how much, and I know it's not an exact number, but so people kind of realize like how many people in general make all these terrible mistakes with money? So I would say most of the folks that we sit down with
0: that I work with personally have a net worth between um, two and a half and five million. And I would say 80% of those people have made a financial mistake that has cost them at least a quarter of a million dollars.
1: So that's what I was thinking. It's probably around the eighty percent. It's probably the the rarer individual that does not mess it up. And I also think the more money you have, probably the the more mistakes you have because the the I don't know the emotions, the mental loopholes get also bigger in a way. Because if you still have two million, you're more careful because it's not a huge amount. But if you're like Mike Tyson, that's getting like fifty million, hundred then suddenly it kind of gets spiraled even more out of control, right?
0: Well, you're right, but there's also there's also some other components to that too. And just, so the impact of your mistakes are more costly the more money you have. But just think about this, like, let's say you have $100,000 in your 401k and you're in your 30s and it goes down 20%, it goes down 20,000, that hurts. Nobody likes to see that and it's painful. But as a 30-year-old, you're thinking, I'm not gonna need this money for 30 more years. you know. I have time to build it back, like whatever. But now fast forward that same person, let's say they have 5 million in their 401k, it goes down 20%. It's the same percentage, but now it's not 20,000. Now their account is down a million dollars. And maybe they're two years away from retirement. Now they freak out. So the exact same scenario plays out, but they have more money, so they feel like they have more to lose, which is true. They're closer to retirement, which a lot of people look as a finish line, not a new chapter in their life. So they feel like, I only have a year or two to make this up, which is not true because you don't die when you retire. You get freedom when you retire. This is still a long-term investment. And there's plenty of time for your orchard to recover. So people get more emotional because they're closer to needing the money or they're in this season where they are harvesting. Like, oh, I, I can't accept this. And they panic. They freak out. Or they... They, their account was temporarily down. So then they double down over here to try to make that money up real quick, maybe go into individual stocks or options or something super risky. So it, it's a cascade of mistakes at that point. So it's not just yeah, uh, you know, m- more money can increase stress just because it's more, but also the stage you are in your life can increase the stress as well. And I wanna make the point, you know, when I said that about 80% of the folks that I work with have made a multiple six-figure mistake these are people that are relatively wealthy you know two and a half to five million dollars they're very well off they've made this mistake and they're still doing okay so i couldn't even tell you when these are people that are they're successful they've done a lot of right things and they have still made very costly mistakes if so if you take the average investor that never even gets to that point i would guess i don't know for sure but i would guess a major financial mistake is probably well above 90% of people. That's a guess, don't hold me to it, but yeah. I'm just, I'm I'm working with a very high caliber class of individual and most of them have made at least one very costly mistake.
1: Yeah, wow. so basically uh, you, we could almost say that, you know, in general, everyone <laughs> that is not educated and prepared and, and advised will mess up very and,
0: likely. And, and that's the other thing too, is you could look at somebody who, let's say they're 55, 60 years old, and they've said, I've, I've never panicked out of a market. I've never chased some, you know, cryptocurrency fad or some you know uh, Enron type thing. I've never chased an individual company. I've I've never mortgaged my house to to buy more stocks, or I've never made any of these financial mistakes that, that people have made it's kind of like saying, I'm going to stop wearing my seatbelt because I've never been in a car accident. And because it's never happened to you, that's great. But to say it'll never happen, I don't need a financial coach. I don't need, I don't need part, somebody in my financial team to, to help prevent mistakes is I think super dangerous. I hire coaches for myself because there's a lot riding on this. I'm human. I'm, I make mistakes, I'm fallible. Just because I've never made this mistake before doesn't mean I'll never make it in the future. So I wanna have people in my corner that hold me accountable because I'm holding several hundred families accountable. As a business, we work with about a thousand families. I have other advisors. So I'm holding my advisors accountable. They're holding people accountable. If I start slipping up, it's a trickle down effect. So I have coaches because it matters that much. And yeah, to say that just because I've never done this thing Means I never will is, I think, short-sighted thinking.
1: Just that thought alone is already a warning sign of overconfidence and almost arrogance. arrogance. And on, a, on and on an of the mind, because it's like the gamble, the gambling, you know, the gambling mindset. Everybody's can, is is uh, how do you say vulnerable to it? Even you know somebody that thinks that they don't like to gamble. Suddenly they make an investment, they lose it. Now they're trying to chase that loss suddenly they're in the gambling mindset without even knowing about it. And then suddenly they lost everything because they fell into that trap because they were, and maybe those people are even the ones that are more uh, susceptible because they've never even made the mistakes to begin with. So they're not even aware they're even more prone to make them because they've uh, they've never learned from it personally. Well, and,
0: and there's something to that, David, that's very, it's a very keen perception. Sometimes if somebody has made a huge mistake and they and they take responsibility, because these this is the things I listen for when talking to somebody. If somebody blames it on the stock market or blames it on their employer, my employer didn't give me very good 401k options, or the stock market did this, or Joe Biden or Donald Trump did this to me, if they're not taking responsibility, that's a huge red flag. I want them to take ownership. But if somebody's made a mistake and and I've had people get emotional, I've had Tough, roughneck oil field guys that are blue collar millionaires start to tear up, talking about mistakes and say, "I will never do that again." That's way more powerful than somebody to whom it's just theory because they've never panicked out of a market. I had a guy in here last week. He's been working the Alaska oil field for almost forty years, and he. We're sitting there. We're going over his stuff, and he's like, "I've never seen how much my mistakes have cost me before." Thank you for showing me this because I will never do that again. And it was this huge moment for him. And I think with proper coaching, that's somebody who will never repeat those mistakes. So I think there's, there's a value. And I'm saying people go out and make mistakes. But, but there's a value to having either a mistake or a, a close brush with a mistake to heighten your senses and remind you of your humanity that we're not perfect. And when you, when you add enough stressful things together, you can take somebody who's extremely disciplined, extremely rigid, not prone to making emotional decisions, and it can get them tripped up. We saw this a lot during COVID, when the S&P 500 went down 34% in 30 days. And it wasn't just a monetary thing. People worried about their health, their families. They were isolated. People were dealing with depression. And you get, you get all those things stirred up into this toxic stew. People I thought would never make the mistakes they did blew up their financial plans because there was stress coming out there from all sides. And you, I mean, you remember you couldn't get away from it. You couldn't go to the store. You couldn't, you couldn't go to a business. You couldn't go anywhere and not be reminded of what was going on. Back in other recessions, you could take a break from it. You could get relief. Yeah, maybe your 401k is down and maybe, maybe your job was on the line, but it didn't, affect every aspect of your life. But with COVID, and hopefully something like that never happens again, but it was completely unavoidable. It was in your face all the time, reminding you how scary the world was. People couldn't get relief from it. And eventually they just got worn down and they made mistakes. It was it was like volatility fatigue.
1: Yeah. I have a theory that, um, because you know, everybody talks about the rule number one of, of investment is to protect your investment, right? Warren Buffett, many people have said that, but I've said, I think that um, that is true, but there's even a bigger rule, uh, which I call rule number two, but it's almost more important than rule number one, which is protect your emotions. Yes. Because if you don't do that first, then you can't do rule number one, right? Like your emotions will first determine everything else in terms of your investing strategy. Like if your emotions are out of whack, you just forget about everything else, right?
0: That is super critical. Oh, you got some great insights. Um, do you want a job? No, um, <laughs> okay. You know, it's it, it is. if you if you can't think right, you can't act right. or at least you can't act right sustainably. And that's why we focus so much on mindset because if you if you have somebody who doesn't have the right mindset with money and they make more money, money just magnifies character. So if you have character flaws, if you have mindset flaws, More money usually magnifies those things. It doesn't fix them. If you if you don't know how to drive and I give you a Ferrari, that doesn't fix the problem. It just means you're gonna wrap yourself around that telephone pole even faster. So if if you don't have this skill set to drive your own emotions, adding more money to the equation is like putting a driver and a Ferrari. It just makes it so much worse. So Managing emotions I think is one of the most critical, but also one of the most difficult pieces to investing. And if you look at everything that's going on in this world, in my industry, in the financial industry, it's all very logical. It's all very formulas and mathematics, charts and graphs. There's nothing wrong with that. But when people start getting emotional, whether that's fear or greed or anger, whatever, the the thought processes start shutting off the the prefrontal cortex the the part of our brain that actually processes logic and reason and we can see this through functional mri sorry i'm nerding out a little bit right now we can see this through watching the brain act in real time there's less blood flow there's less activity and there's more activity in the limbic system the kind of the, the the lizard part of the brain so to speak where we process our emotions and that lights up so the prefrontal cortex, where we're thinking through things logically, that cools down, our emotional centers light up. So what I'm trying to say is, when we get emotionally charged about something, we literally stop thinking about it. And that's what, my, that's what the financial industry misses. We're so focused on the math and the logic, and we miss the emotional part.
1: And a lot of that has to do with the ego, because people think Im- immediately they start getting into the world of investing and immediately their ego starts to grow up because they understand charts, they understand investment. And the, and um, and nobody talks about, like you said, everybody's talking about the charts, the math, the this, that, and nobody's talking about this super important uh, core, you know, flaws of humans in the world of investment. That's like, that's not sexy, that's kind of, I want to feel like I'm the smartest guy in the room. I, I want to have charts on my screen. I want to, you know, be the next, you know, whatever, Wolf of Wall Street. And that's the guy that's going to lose all his money, you know. So, so uh, it's, and even in the trading world, like it, it, everybody talks about, oh, psychology is so important, you, but you grab on, you count how many books there are of math, algorithms, you know, theories, this amount, how many books are there of you know, psychology and investing is like this, right? Well,
0: and there's a book by Morgan Housel. We'll give him a little shout out here. Morgan Housel wrote a book called Psychology of Money. It is absolutely fantastic. And it talks about that connection and how irrational, very, very, very smart human beings are with money. And I also want to point out something. You mentioned Warren Buffett earlier. He's incredibly intelligent. Don't get me wrong, but... What he's done, two major things have made him so successful. Number one, he has surrounded himself with very, very intelligent people that hold him accountable. This is what we were talking about a few minutes ago, realizing that he is, at the end of the day, still human. So his entire career surrounded himself with very, very intelligent people that make sure that he doesn't veer off the path. And the other thing that he's been able to do that not everybody can probably do Um, He is almost robotic about his investing decisions. He can make billion dollar decisions and have almost no emotion. I don't know if he's kind of disconnected his brain, there's some wiring stuff or it's something he's trained himself. And that's something that's hard because the average person can't do that. 99% of people can't and the 1% that can probably have some sociopathic tendencies. We won't get into that. But Warren Buffett is almost completely emotionally detached from investments. So you combine those two things, that's what's made him so successful. But for the people listening to this, you may not be able to completely detach, but what you can do is surround yourself with those people that can call you out on it when your emotions get high. So no, you can't be Warren Buffett, but out of the two things that he's done to make himself successful, you can at least do half of them.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And and do that before you realize that you're not the exception to the rule, and then you're in, you know, in the streets you know just be smart right um, and yeah. and yeah i I've, I've always thought Warren Buffett must be some type of psychopath or sociopath like there's something wrong with him because also his level of patience is just on you know just extremely insane like um so uh, there's there's something but then he's giving advice to people as what he does but but nobody's like him so I don't know how I don't like his way of investing because I think it's I don't believe in uh, speculation, I think that's a way of gambling, but, and it opens up to many laws of, you know, mistakes that we can make. So i like more to think about something more, taking into account how unreliable our own Mm -hmm. opinion is, you know, about what we think is going on, right? But uh, so I want to get into, you know, let's talk about now the other part of investing. So we talked about psychology. Uh, What you know so we're in the year 2023 for people seem to see into the future right now you know what is kind of odd what is like uh performing well or i don't know what is the way that um uh, how do you see kind of investing right now i mean obviously this is not financial advice but you know uh maybe in this crazy world is there some asset that's kind of performing better than others or let me let me try to
0: break that down and maybe a couple different answers so number one the best investment for you is the right tool to build your financial house so it, it is not one size fits all um it should not be like hey this this one idea one plant works for everybody uh whenever i hear that i always cringe i always think what's coming next you know um, great returns, no risk. You know, your grandma can have this and your your 20-year-old grandson can, can use it too, whatever. Um, but as a general rule, I believe investors should be owners and not loaners. Owning companies has historically in the United States been the best way to build wealth. Owning and, it through stocks? Well, we use mutual funds because two, two, two reasons. Number one, well, we'll touch on the emotions. Um, When you own a mutual fund or several mutual funds, it's like having thousands of trees in your orchard instead of just five or 10 real big trees. So you're not reliant on any one company for your financial success. You're you're less emotionally involved. Now, you can still have a a investment of mutual funds, very, very good mutual funds, go down 20, 30% temporarily, but you're not gonna have 5,000 companies 5,000 of the biggest, best companies in the world disappear off the planet. If we do, being wealthy is not gonna be a concern. It's gonna be, there's a guy running after me with a chainsaw right now and I have no clean water. Like those are gonna be my concerns. So being able to to be less emotional, mutual funds help because they detach us a little bit from the investment. If we're picking individual stocks, it's, it's like adopting a child. It's like, no, I picked that company. Like they're part of my family now. And in, again, I'm not saying it's impossible, but as a general rule, people are more emotional about individual stocks than are about mutual funds. The other nice thing about mutual funds is diversification. Again, like I said about the, the, the orchard, you don't own five or 10 huge trees, you own thousands of little trees. So if a few of those trees die, it's okay. um, you're not as emotionally invested, but you're also, you're literally not as financially invested the simplest way to say it is, you don't have enough money in any one thing to make a killing. You also don't have enough money in any one thing to get killed. And that's that's the critical piece. It's sustainable. And sometimes people have created great wealth inside of a business or something like that. Maybe they did buy Amazon 20 years ago, but now they have to make it sustainable, which means we've got to spread out that risk. We don't want your financial future resting on one or five or even 20 companies. It doesn't matter who the companies are. Um, some of your audience probably won't even remember Kodak, but Kodak was a film company back when we used to record pictures on films, not phones. And they were one of the biggest, most influential companies in the world. And they weren't able to pivot. They, think of Blockbuster, think what Netflix, Netflix tried to sell themselves a Blockbuster. Blockbuster's like, yeah, whatever, we don't need you guys, look what happened. And then you have companies like Enron, who was just built on a house of cards and lies. So. There's plenty of examples of companies that people thought were either too big to fail or the biggest thing, the best thing since sliced bread. But if you have enough money in any one company to make a killing, you also have enough money in any one thing to get killed by it. So we're talking about building wealth slowly, not trying to get rich quick, and mutual funds are a tremendous way to do that for those two reasons. Also, there's a difference between what people do when they're wealthy and what people do to build wealth. When if, if you are worth $10 million or $100 million, you can buy individual companies and still be fairly well diversified. You can buy real estate. You can buy private companies. You have more money. But somebody who's just starting out, maybe their 20s or 30s, or maybe most of your wealth is wrapped up in your 401k. Mutual funds allow you to invest in some of the best companies in the world without having a ton of money yet. And we need to remember that yeah, you know, what somebody is doing once they're wealthy isn't necessarily the path to wealth. And you know, just think of people, you know, driving the nice cars and going on the fancy vacations. Like that's great once you're wealthy. That's not how you get wealthy. You get wealthy by by driving cars that are 15, 20 years old and investing your money. And you know, somebody somebody that has mutual funds can invest just like somebody. Who's Warren Buffett? You can invest like Warren Buffett through mutual funds. Are you going to be able to be as good as him? No. Are you going to be able to do some of the things that he's doing, turn around companies? No, but you can still be involved in his investment process through mutual funds. So um, that's a really long-winded way of answering your question. But when you said like what is hot right now, I'm I'm far less interested in what is hot right now, more interested in what has always worked. But what I will say is this, for the last year and a half, some of the best companies in the world, both US and internationally, have been on sale. People have been worried about inflation, been worried about a recession, that has pulled prices down. The people on Wall Street are calling it a crash, calling it a bear market, but what's the what's actually happened? The The real situation is that we have some of the best companies in the world on sale right now. So I see that as a tremendous opportunity. Does that mean they're hot? Does that mean that we're gonna have a great end of the year, great, First quarter 2024, I don't know. I also don't really care. I'm more worried about what the next 5, 10, 15 years is going to do, more than the next five months. And when I can buy the best companies in the world at a discount, I'm going to get pretty excited.
1: But it's very dangerous because at the same time, it's things that are, you know, they say don't catch a falling knife, right? So how far are they going to go before they can start going up? That's the tricky part, right? And then mm, the one thing that I always think about, about, you know, uh, investing in all this is like, there's a strategy and then it's like a circle, like a Venn diagram. The strategy is one circle and then the ability to execute it is another circle. And then the two kind of connect. And depending on how difficult it is to execute it, is how much early it overlaps. Some, some strategies are genius. But it's like so hard to execute, which makes them unusable. So what I like about what you're saying about the mutual funds, it's, it's a very good strategy and very easy to execute, which is going to improve its success rate. Because that's what people don't think about the, you know, how, you know, and also the, even if let's say you're the most, I don't know, let's say that you, you, you don't change it or you execute it perfectly. How much are you going to suffer? you know, pulling your hair out during the whole period. So it's, we also wanna don't, you know, we wanna sleep well. So that's how, what's the price of that? You know, maybe you have to sacrifice huge gains, but you're gonna be safe, you're gonna be relaxed. You're not gonna be on the edge of your seat, like 24 seven for years, you know, for for extra, you know, percentage. So you're right. Mutual funds do offer high application.
0: It's, it's fairly simple to execute. The hardest part about, Long-term investing, though, isn't making the investment; it's staying invested. It's riding the course in the middle of storms when everybody in the media is saying that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So, it isn't making the investment; it's staying in the investment. So, I think anybody can join a gym, but actually going and showing up every day—like that's the hard part, right? Um, yeah. But I want—I just want to mention too: it, it is scary out there. And you talk about catching a falling knife. And that's what investing can feel like sometimes but it's more true in individual stocks and i'm just going to give you an example if you invested in the s p 500 which is the 500 largest companies publicly traded companies in the united states um and you can't invest directly in them but there's indexes or index funds that kind of follow them but just let's say let's say you could buy the s p 500 index and you put a million dollars on october 9th 2007 that was the day that we started the financial crash now we didn't know it yet but that's that's the day we peaked so you talk about the worst financial crash since the great depression that would be arguably the worst day to invest but let's say you did it you did the worst in luck you a million dollars you pushed in to the s p 500 october 9th, 2007. by march 9th, 2009 that million dollars would have been less than 400,000. You would have looked like an idiot. You would have felt like an idiot. You've been pretty confident you probably were an idiot. Today, that same investment, even though we're in the middle of a market decline right now, this would be worth over $4 million. So even though you would have had arguably the worst time possible, you would have felt like you were catching a falling knife that was on fire right? But if you stayed in it long enough, you would still look like a genius today. And that's the benefit of being broadly diversified in companies is that even if you have horrible timing, time heals those wounds. You just have to be patient. Yeah, And you said about Warren Buffett, that's, he's incredibly patient. It goes back to his emotions. A lot of people aren't patient enough to write out those long-term declines.
1: Yeah. And I like that because that, that, uh, you know the stock market always goes up in general always in general right throughout history it's always going up in general but if you but if you pick and choose where you think is going to go up the most that's where you expose yourself to you know those huge so if you spread it out then you're going with historically for I don't know how many hundreds of hundred 200 years stock market always in general goes up so I mean that's that's kind of the safest, you know, bed. With you have to diversify, in a very like like you said, not even twenty. I think that at least has to be yeah. Well, mutual funds. I don't know how many there are in each in each one, but it's it's hundreds, hundreds, right? sometimes hundreds. even
0: thousands. Yep.
1: So. So yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, because it only takes one second to decide to sell everything, you know, when you can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's always in the worst moment possible when you when you kind of get to that it's always when it's about to turn around turn around and you know start going up when suddenly and i believe subconsciously well this is a little uh out there but i believe that super subconsciously we know kind of when is kind of sub, super subconsciously we know everything well this little spiritual whatever but. Because that's the only way I can explain why it's always exactly in the worst moment that we kind of self sabotage ourselves. Because, for example, for me, one time I was like trading back in like 2016, and I went, I decided to go all in uh, with all the money I had at that moment, exactly like three minutes before a uh, flash crash.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah. So,
1: So it was like the chances of that happening is like so insanely low that it's like the only way that I could come up with a reason that how I could have chosen that is like somehow subconsciously I knew and I it was like so. But anyway, that's that's my crazy theory about, you know, how much we can can't trust ourselves because it all even Steve Jobs himself. I think he sold like all of Apple exactly before it was about to go up. And I've seen this many times that it's like we choose the exact worst moment to to pull out so and it only takes one second to kind of you know we're we're waiting a year in our strategy kind of holding on and it's like we can't take it anymore we when we get out and then it's like it only takes one second to you know exit and lose well and and
0: technology is great it does so much for us on the investing side of things and in other areas of life but to your point it it makes the mistakes easier to make because you can sell everything with a button click now Just just think about if it was like selling your house. If you have this mutual fund portfolio or stock portfolio, you're nervous and you're freaked out, but you have to hire a realtor, you have to put a for sale sign, you have to show people your portfolio, you have to talk them into it. Then they sign a contract and it takes another 30, 60 days beyond that to close. And it took three months to sell off your portfolio. You would have time to regain your, your awareness of what was going on you get past the moments and you're like, okay, I don't want to do this. I was panicked, I got a little crazy. But with with mutual funds, with stocks, with with a lot of investments right now, you
1: could do with a button click.
0: And it allows people to act in the deepest darkest pits of their emotion.
1: And that also makes the form so much greater because yes. it's so easy to get in and write something. So it, it works. Uh, against us in both mm-hmm. ways right in the in the fear and, and the, the greed. greed but uh yeah it's extremely difficult so um so yeah mutual funds is kind of your kind of the best safest you know more time tested uh you know thing people can consider it's not advice to consider looking into It's it's a way Yes, it's a way, and mutual
0: funds is, of course, a very broad category too, right? There's, you can have some mutual funds are better fit for some people than others, but as a general rule, it's a way for everyday people to make extremely strategic investments and to build wealth consistently and sustainably over time. And it's repeatable. And that's the thing, like there's people that talk about how they build wealth. Even like you said, some things that Warren Buffett has done, they're not repeatable strategies. Normal, everyday people couldn't do them. Just like, you know, you could go and look up Kobe Bryant's workouts or Michael Jordan's workouts um, or Barry Sanders and some of these sports icons. Like, oh, I'll just do that. No, you couldn't. Like, they were physical freaks. You could not go do that. You would get hurt. So what worked for them might not work for the average individual. But you talk to their coaches, people like, uh, Tim Grover, who trained all these athletes, he worked with a wide variety of athletes, and that's kind of like buying a mutual fund. It's like somebody who's figured out a way to make it attainable for a large group of people. I've never used that metaphor before, but um, but mutual funds allow for a repeatable process. Where did just work for one person. It's worked is built wealth for millions of people. So I'm not saying it's the only approach that works, but it's time-tested and it can work for almost anyone.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's a reason why, you know, so many, this the, even the most brilliant people in the world, you know, hit their you know, crash to a wall in the stock market. Like, so it's it's not only your, you know, you might be very smart, but that's not enough, you know. And, uh, and even that, you still have to you're still gonna make a ton of mistakes and you don't wanna make the mistakes with all your money on the line. So it's like, um, so yeah, I, I really like everything that you said. I mean, we're getting close to the end. I'd like you to tell, you know, people, um, you know, where they can find you, you know, maybe a little bit more or something else you wanna tell about the servers you're giving. And uh, yeah, please. Well, we've talked a lot about mindset and psychology and ho- hopefully
0: that hasn't pushed people away but I do want to remind people that what you do, your own behaviors, your choices, like that ultimately is the the biggest driving factor, whether you know, your 401k is with Fidelity or Vanguard, or, or whether you like this mutual fund company, that mutual fund company, um, or, you know, maybe you're going to do it a completely different way. But as an individual, the reason psychology and mindset matters, is because we are as an individual, we are the biggest variable in our own success. And if you as the individual aren't looking at something the right way. It doesn't matter what tools you're using. You won't get the most out of that tool. They won't be effective for you. So that, that is a caution, but it's also an encouragement that take control of what you can do and don't worry so much about what you don't know. And for folks that want to learn more or they're intrigued or want to, want to figure out like how to apply some of these principles to your own financial path, our website is veritasalaska.com. If you have questions, you can email us at ask, A-S-K, ask, at veritasalaska.com. We're also, we just started consistently posting encouraging uh, educational and empowering messages up on um, Instagram. So it's it's new, but we've got a lot of content already in the the works that we're just sprinkling out there that goes a lot in line with what we're talking about here today. So they can find us on there. It's veritas.alaska on Instagram.
1: Great, I'm going to put everything in the show notes, so it's going to be there as well, but it's great that uh, people that are listening can also search it right now. And um, any last words you want to say before we go? Or that that was everything. You know what, that was most of it. And yeah, your
0: your future is too important to go at it alone, surround yourself with the right kind of people that are going to hold you accountable, encourage you and keep you moving in the right direction.
1: That's awesome. Chad, it been such a great conversation i, I really enjoyed it uh, i learned a lot and uh, i'm really happy that you know you're helping people you know keep their money and grow it and you know live a good life What's the point of working all your life and then getting to the retirement and they just make all these mistakes and like that's kind of extremely depressing and you know tragic so you know you're doing a great service to people and and uh so I invite everybody to, you know, go check out your website, email you, you know, learn, ask questions, you know, get to know him, uh, the company and, you know, start, you know, uh, being smart with your with your hard-earned money, right? Well, it's been my pleasure to be here. Again, thank you so much
0: for having me and really enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully it was valuable to you and your listeners.
1: Thanks, you, Charlie. It was, well, we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much and have a great day. Right, take care.